Our first guest is Kari Gislason. Kari, as I mentioned, was born in Iceland. He's the author of four books, two nonfiction and two novels. The Promise of Iceland tells the story of uh, return journeys he's made to his birthplace, while Saga Land, the island of stories at the edge of the world, co-written with Richard Feidler, is an account of visits they made together to the places where the Icelandic sagas actually took place. It won the Indie Book Award for nonfiction in 2018. His novels include The Ashburner and the book he'll be discussing tonight, The Sorrow Stone, an epic and compelling novel that reimagines the fate of one of Iceland's famous women of history. Kari lectures in creative writing at QUT and fair declaration here. There's a bit of Queensland writing companionship going on here because Kari was kind enough to launch my previous novel at um, Avid Reader a few years ago. Please welcome Kari to Mulaney. Hello, everyone. Hello. So, Kari, this novel, The Sorrow Stone, is based on one of the Icelandic sagas. Now, while probably everybody has heard of the Icelandic saga, it seems mm. to me possible that not so many of them actually know what they are. Could you yeah. elaborate a little bit? Yeah, um, Iceland was settled by, by mainly by um, Norwegians in, in the 9th century. We think that the Norwegians arrived in Iceland around 870. And, and when they arrived, they brought with them a rich poetic tradition. So even though they were, were Vikings and there was a warrior culture, there was also this rich tapestry of storytelling. And that first appeared in complex skaldic verses, which gradually transformed into prose stories. And they are the, the sagas of Iceland. Uh, the word saga is an Icelandic word or a Norse word meaning a story. And it also means a history. And so in the sagas of the Icelanders, we have both things going on at once. They're, they're the stories of the people who, who moved from Norway to Iceland in the 870s and who started a whole new kind of society there. And they're also historical accounts of, of Viking culture and the Viking diaspora, which was actually really wide. You know, it went to, to Greenland, to North America and Canada, uh, to Russia... Ireland, the entire uh, sort of part of Northern Europe that was influenced by, you know, Norse culture and society. And these sagas uh, preserve those, those stories and they preserve the myths as well. And, I mean, was there anybody in Iceland when they arrived? Uh, well, apparently there were some Irish monks there already. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we think, we think they arrived by leather boat from Ireland in the 700s. And they had the place to themselves for about 100 years. And then, of course... But the there were monks. So were there Christian many, were monks. There, were there many women amongst them? <laughs> you think they did, did they? Did they? Are you suggesting there might have been a problem with procreation? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they had the place to themselves for a while, and they lived in caves. And if you go to the south of Iceland, there are caves you can visit with Christian markings, with crosses on the walls. Uh, but when the Vikings arrived, we don't exactly know what happened. Um, but in the Viking stories, they say that they killed them all straight away. Probably they didn't. Probably there was some ongoing exchange. And we also know that many, many of the women who came to Iceland in these early days came from Ireland and the Hebrides. There's a gene in the matrilineal line 
that only exists in the Hebrides and in Iceland. And so whatever the Vikings were doing on their way to, to Iceland, <laughs> there was some kind of stopover and a courtship uh, involved. And uh, it's interesting, in the, this journey from Norway to Iceland features yeah. in the novel. And yes. it seems to have been like two or three weeks. I mean, you, it's hard to tell how yeah. long it is from the, what you say in the novel because, yeah. it, because it seems to be endless to the people yes. who are undergoing yeah. it. Uh, and, uh, I mean, how, how did they find Iceland? How did yeah. they know Iceland was there even to look for? It's a source of ongoing discussion and debate how the Vikings actually navigated. I mean, we know that they were very successful navigators and didn't fail very often. But in terms of getting to Iceland, they went south first. So most um, settlers in Iceland were from the west coast, so Bergen and Trondheim and those areas. And they sailed south to Faroe, Shetland, Orkney, Caithness, across to the Hebrides, and then up. And that was probably a safer way of getting to Iceland than going straight across the North Atlantic. Uh, of course, passages were only in summer, and they were in open vessels. And I think sort of one of the things that um, I was trying to do in this book was just climb inside the minds of people who were brave enough to do that. Of course, we still have people today who are brave enough to climb into open vessels. Um, and to think about going across the North Atlantic uh, and settling in a new place, you know, it, it, the mind boggles. Yeah. But these were an extraordinarily brave people, as well as, at times, a vicious people. So the book we've got here is this particular saga that you've taken this book yeah. on because we, we better move on, on to the, some more <laughs> specifics. It was really the story of Thordis Sersdottir. Yeah. yeah? Um, so without giving too many spoilers, can you kind of set the scene for, for, this, for this novel? Yeah, um, so uh, Thordis is a real person. Um, she's actually my direct ancestor. Uh, she uh, lived and was, she was born in... Surnadal in Norway in 950 and she left Norway as a young woman in her 20s. Uh, there had been a fight and the family had to leave and they had to start again and this story is the story of her relationship with her two brothers. Um, now in medieval Icelandic society your family was everything, okay? So there is no executive government. There's no police, there's no army, there's, there's no centralising force. There is a judiciary and there is a legislature. So laws are made and cases are decided, but you rely entirely on your family to enforce those laws. So if you win a case, that's great, but you then have to execute it yourself. And so this creates and a particular... the use of the word execute here is not accidental. Yeah, exactly, in both senses, normally involving violence. And Disa has a very close relationship with her brothers, younger brothers. She brings them up and she wants them to be brave and she wants them to have honour. Honour is everything in this culture. But eventually she realises that one of them is, is rather possessive of her, um, even to the point of a, a certain degree of sexual possession, and he, he wants to control her love interests. And that creates a problem for Disa, for her, for her life, because she needs these men in her life, 
She needs her brothers to be close and she wants the best for them. But when she falls in love with a man that they don't like, there's a problem. There certainly is. I mean, and these sagas are kind of, I mean, as you say, they're, they're true stories, but they're also by way of myth, aren't they? Yes. But even taking it into account of myth, there is a lot of violence yeah. in, in that society. Do you think the society was really quite as violent as that? We have, the stories that we have are, are condensed tales. So they might take place over 30 or 40 years and a feud might last that long. And because they're so condensed, it feels as though there's a lot of violence. But you make a fair point. Probably it, it wasn't ever present. But the threat was there. The threat was always there. And this was a, a culture that didn't have a problem with violence. I think that's the really hard part to, to, to understand about them. They didn't see violence as a negative way of resolving disputes. And if you were in, a, in, a, in, a, in an argument with someone and you sued them and you didn't like the outcome, you had the right to challenge them. So ultimately, the, 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 your, your skill as a, as a fighter could trump the law. And they thought that was right and proper, that, that violence should, should be the ultimate decider. But at the same time as this, this society is kind of uh, in quite a destructive spin, there's a new religion coming in. You know, this is the era of the arrival of Christianity in Scandinavia. And it promises a whole different way of dealing with things. You can forgive someone. Imagine that. <laughs> you know, someone, someone has done something terrible to you and instead of killing them and their family, you're going to be big and you're going to give way. And that idea of forgiveness and grace and mercy, that completely transforms Iceland and, and the Scandinavian world. And it really heralds the end of the Viking Age. Because suddenly you're not accountable to honour. You know, you're accountable to God. It, it is a, a, a tremendous turnaround because, yeah. because honour is such a strong force all the way through this book, all the way through that particular culture. And in fact, all through a lot of, almost every culture that human beings have up until about the kind of 20th century, when suddenly sort of halfway through the 20th century, we decided that, I mean, we didn't need honour anymore or something. I don't know. Do you, do you have an opinion on that? I think um, honour is essentially, at least in this world, about memory, how we, are, how we are remembered. So the reason why Icelandic sagas really exist is because they are the time vessels of reputation. And what you really want uh, from your life as a 10th century Icelander is to be remembered for having done something worthwhile. Now, how that equates to action can change if the ethos changes. So if you can be remembered for performing great forgiveness and performing great deeds of largesse instead of uh, violence, then you're still remembered. And the sagas contain both. They contain warriors who are remembered for their, I suppose, their physical bravery and disregard for death. But they also contain a new type of person. And in this book, it's, it's the main character's son. Uh, he's a real person as well. So her son was one of the, the key people to bring Christianity 
to Iceland. She did not believe in Christ, but her son did. So in this very moment, you get the generational change. And he wants to be remembered just as much, but he wants to be remembered for a different kind of, of gift, if you like. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't imagine a lot of these sagas are about women. Women are secondary characters in the main, but there is one, there is one saga that's very famous for its concentration on a, on a woman. Um, uh, her name is, is Gudrun, and she is the main character of the Laxdala saga. And it tells the story of her four marriages, actually. Uh, and then at the end of the saga, her son asks her about, um, about the marriages. Actually, it's the most, probably the most famous line in Icelandic literature, just about. And he, he says, who did you love the most? And she says, um, I can't possibly tell you that. And he says, please, mother, tell me. And she says, and it means I was worse to the one that I loved the most. And that's all she'll give him at the end <laughs> of her life. So she is, she is unique in the sagas. But even though they're secondary characters... But, but, they have Thor, a, but they Thor, have Thor, a, this isn't. Disa, this yeah. character, she's not secondary to this saga. She's, she isn't the main character. So her brother is the main but character you, in the original, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay, so, so this is a kind of authorial choice you've yes. made to, to make her the main character. So Gisli, the main character in the saga, is one of those people who's very ethically clear. He, he is absolutely always doing the right thing according to the heroic code. So when there's a... When Disa falls in love with a boy next door, in the next farm, the absolutely right thing to do is to kill him. <laughs> and Gisli does. And it's, it's incontrovertible. In that system, for her to be sleeping with someone else without the permission of the family is wrong. And he should know better and he will suffer the consequences. But those types of people are not that... I don't think they're that interesting to write about because they are so clear-cut. And Disa is a character who's seeing all this action from slightly from the side. And that's why I wrote her story. I find her more ethically interesting. She's trying to work it out and trying to survive, really. And she doesn't have the clarity of her brother. And she doesn't actually sort of go and kill anybody either, although she stabs a couple. But <laughs> she, she has a great moment where she puts a knife through someone's leg. Uh, that's not... Not, not normal in that culture. She, she's unusual in her, in her violence. And she's, she is a, she's a difficult, complex person. Um, but then these were difficult and complex times. Yeah. Yeah. Look, that, I think that's probably a good, a good note to, to end on. That's, look, it, it's a fascinating book. And, Thank you. And just, look, I can't recommend it highly enough. I, I hope everybody buys a copy and reads it. Okay. Curry, thank, thank you so much. Please thank you put everyone. your hands together for Curry.